0: you believe you're a child of God this morning would you say amen Amen. so no longer a slave to fear can you imagine what it was like to be in the first century in the city of rome when that big federal express truck backed up to the door and somebody dropped off 16 chapters we call it the book of romans today I, i can't imagine being in whatever household you're in when that letter arrived we call it the book of Romans they didn't have a name for it and I'm sure they were wondering why would he do this right 16 chapters I've, I've received long letters before like two or three pages right but 7,000 words Paul's dropped off this letter we call it the book of Romans 16 chapters long and he really 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 wanted those individuals living in that church, in that city, to understand who they are in Christ. He really had a concern for their maturity that they would grow in Christ, but before he ever taught them any theology whatsoever, if you're not familiar with the word theology, it simply means the study of God. Before he taught them any of that, he really wanted to share his heart And that's what we've been looking at in the introduction here in these first few weeks. Paul's laying his heart bare. Well, today we see the summation of that. He continues with laying it out there of why he's doing what he's doing. If you'll turn with me in your Bible into the book of Romans, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, um, you'll be able to follow along that way or or in the rack in front of you, in the the pew that you're in, you can follow along. But you'll also see it on the screen, Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to take you right into verse 8 because we want to examine right where we left off at last time we were together. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul's got this uh, real desire to help them understand his his desire. I'll come back to that thought in just a minute. He says this in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And he's already laid out for them in verse 5 that he's got this responsibility, and they do as well, to bring people to the obedience of the faith. We examined that last week. In other words, making Jesus Lord of your life. We examined that pretty thoroughly. Now he comes to them and says, I thank God for you through Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is to them and what he accomplished. Paul says, I thank my God. Now I have personally found just my life observation, that you can learn a lot about an individual by just watching their actions. You can learn a lot about their priorities in life. When you look at Paul from a distance and you observe the things that he has done, I learn a great deal about what's really important to him. I need somebody in the auditorium to look for us at verse 7. Just let your eyes drift back up in your Bible. And tell us, just yell yell it out real loud, what does Paul call God in verse 7? There you go, Father. Okay? Verse 7, he says, Father. In verse 8, he says, My God. What's he revealing to us? He's revealing something about this intimacy of the relationship that he has with the Father. In other words, God is not a theological concept, an abstract deity that's removed from Paul. Paul's saying, this is very intimate. This is very personal to me. Here's why this is significant. Maybe you've never really stopped to think about this before. But prior to the first century, no one used personal pronouns when referring to God. In the Jewish world... They would not attach the thought of Father to God in the sense that we are told to do it by Jesus. People come to Jesus and say, how should we pray? Would you teach us to pray? Well, how does he start right out? Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven. Jews would never do that in the first century, to approach God as a personal being, with an intimate relationship. And for Paul to say, my God, our Father, he's revealing a whole lot about his heart. A believer really understands that God is close, right, church? He's not separate from us. Not distant. He's very, very close. So Paul says, you got this close relationship with the same God that I do. He's my God. He's your God. And so through Jesus Christ, I thank Him for you. He's reminding us that none of us get to go to God on our own. We have to go through Jesus because of what Jesus did. So he said right there, through Jesus. I go, to, I go to God the Father through Jesus because of what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, and because of your intimate relationship with him, and this understanding of who you are before God, the whole world is coming to know of your faith. And he uses this phrase, the whole world, he's obviously obviously talking about the Roman Empire, the known world at that period of time. What people understood to be the whole civilized world. They know of the faith of these believers in the city of Rome. Now travel at that period of time in the first century was as common then as it is today. They just didn't have fast means of transportation. But the Roman roads existed. Uh, maybe you've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Derek, do you have that little image that you pulled up? There it is. Well, he told me he had an image for us to see. Okay, you are seeing all those yellow lines stemming out from the city of Rome. Think of it this way. The roads were so intense spreading out from the city of Rome. It, w- it was like the spokes on the wheel of a wagon. And Rome is at the very center of the hub. Well, because there were so many roads available at that time, information spread very, very quickly throughout the empire. And it makes Paul's job a whole lot easier as he's traveling through the empire to point to those people in the city of Rome and say, You see what's going on over there? What God is doing through them? The whole empire knows of what God is doing among them. Uh, I just need to remind you who these people are and where they're at. They're believers in Jesus Christ, and they're in the belly of the beast, yet they're living their faith with incredible integrity. They live in the capital city of this empire where people are completely opposed to Jesus. In 49 A.D., Emperor Claudius, who was the Caesar at that period of time, had issued a decree banning all Jewish people from the city of Rome. They had to, even if they had their homes there and their livelihood there, they had to pick up and leave. And here's the reason why. Jews who became believers in Jesus Christ began talking about him a great deal. And Gentiles who became believers in Jesus Christ began talking about him a great deal. And the more they talked about Jesus, the more it irritated people in the city. And so there was this fighting between non-believing Jews and believing Jews and believing Gentiles and non-believing Gentiles. Well, it came to Caesar's ear that these individuals were following this new leader called Crestus. Somebody misspelled Jesus' name, and Caesar heard about this new ruler called Crestus, and he decided if they're going to follow this new guy, Crestus, I don't want him here because they're bringing friction within the city. You're all gone, and he banned them from the city. That's how much these individuals were talking about Jesus, that Caesar even had to issue a decree to send people away so there wouldn't be infighting. See, some churches become really, really famous because of their pastor. Some churches become really, really famous because of their architecture. But this church is famous because of how they follow Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? They follow Jesus to the degree that the whole Roman Empire is hearing about them. My prayer for new hope is that we would be known that way. That that we would be those who boast in Jesus, regardless of whatever new building we might build or great architecture it might be. Regardless of anything else about this church, that we would be known as people who boast in Jesus. Church growth has always been conditional. And it's always been conditional on one thing, The willingness of believers to share who Jesus is and what God is doing among them in their church. Obviously, you all are doing that because people keep showing up here, right? Maybe not so much on Fourth of July weekend, right? But you all are talking because people keep being drawn into this thing that's called New Hope Church. And we're talking about Jesus all the time. So you're all doing what you're supposed to be doing. Verse 9 says this, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Now, these believers who are living in the heart of this capital city, they really need to know for certain that Paul's got their back. And they need to know that Paul is not using idle talk when he uses these phrases. So he takes an oath. He he says, I I need you to know, and only God can attest to this, that with all my might, with all my strength, with all my soul, I am lifting you up before God the Father. And I really desire to come to you. I want to be with you. And I want you to hear the gospel of Jesus more clearly. Here's the backstory on this prayer request that Paul is making if you think back to our study in the book of acts about a year ago this is the point where paul was in the city of corinth that's where he was at when he penned this letter called romans and he's about to leave to go to jerusalem now he's amassed a great deal of money he's collected money for those who are starving back in jerusalem for the very very poor to help meet their needs He's about to get on a ship to sell to Jerusalem, but he's telling the people in Rome, I really want to come to you. I want to share these truths with you. And there's a couple things that you need to know. You need to know that I'm constantly remembering you in prayer. There's two things specifically I see when he mentions this. First of all, he says, I'm praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it look like when somebody says, I'm praying for you, and they pray for you deeply? I want to give you an example of a deep prayer that Paul prayed from Ephesians chapter 3. Watch this through this lens of him saying, I'm praying for you. This is what it looks like for Paul to pray for somebody. It's kind of a longer passage, but look with me at verse 14. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God." That's praying in depth, right? He's not praying they just have a good day. Pray, God, that you would just give them a good day. No, that's not it. That's praying in depth. Parents, you want to pray for your kids in depth? Pray that they would be rooted in God, that they would know the, the width and the depth and the breadth and the length and the height, and to experience the love of Christ Jesus, that they would know the power of the Holy Spirit. That is praying in depth for somebody. Paul says, this is the way I'm praying for you. But you notice, here's the second thing. He says, not only that I'm praying for you, but he slides in a qualification. He says, I'm praying for you according to God's will. I want to come to you. You're going to discover as we work through the book of Romans, that is the primary concern, that he would follow God's leading, not his own plans. And here's why I think that's so significant. All too often, I've done this throughout the course of my life, All too often, we're really guilty of formulating our own plans and trying to drag God into it, are we not? We, We come up with our own ideas. I've done this many, many times, especially when I was younger. God, I got this great idea. Would you come over here and bless it? Instead of recognizing he's the master, I'm the servant, going to him first. God, what do you want me to do? Paul's saying, I want to do this according to the will of God. Now, that really, really takes a surrendered heart. It takes a very surrendered heart to say, not my will, but your will be done. Where where have we heard that before? Jesus in the garden, deathbed prayer. He's about to go to the cross. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. That's some intense praying, is it not? To pray for God's will in that way, it really takes a surrendered heart. So Paul's saying, I want to come, but only when God chooses and in the way God chooses. And in reality, you're looking at a prayer request before everything that we learned in Acts unfolded. In reality, Paul had a really, really hard time when God answered this prayer. Paul said, "I want to come to you, but what do he have to experience first? He shows up in Jerusalem, shows up with all the money. What does he endure? People falsely accuse him. Then they begin beating him. then he's put in stocks. Remember, he's stretched out with leather. They're about to whip his hide. They release him and they interrogate him. and they end up putting him in prison. And he does two years in prison. Eventually he's put on a ship. His ship breaks apart in the Mediterranean. He's stranded on a desert island for an entire winter, bitten by snakes. And when he arrives in Rome, he arrives as a prisoner in chains. That all happens after the prayer request. But Paul's still saying, I'm praying for the will of God. He has no idea of the beatings, the interrogations, the court trials, the prison. He doesn't know that's going to happen to him. He's just praying for the will of God. I said in the Saturday night service last night that praying for the will of God is the most dangerous prayer you can make. Now, I had people push back last night, Saturday night service, so we hung around for our Q&A time afterwards just talking about that subject because they wanted to clarify, well, what do you mean by that? One person said, I'm shocked that you said that. Let me clarify what I mean. There's dangerous bad and there's dangerous good. Dangerous bad is when you're like 19 years old and your 19-year-old friend calls you up and says, hey, I got a great idea. How about if I pull you on your skateboard behind my car and we'll see if we can go 50 miles an hour, okay? That's dangerous bad, all right? Not good. Dangerous good is I want to come to you in Rome and I know that we need to connect, but I'm praying for the will of God first, You have no idea what you're opening yourself up to, that there could be prison, that there could be beatings, that there could be shipwrecks. It's dangerous good because God's will is accomplished, but it puts you in a very vulnerable, vulnerable place. That's why it really takes a mature person to pray that way. God, I want your will. But Jesus said that's the way we're supposed to pray. Father, I want your will in this situation. Some of you are gonna face situations this week that you need to begin praying about right now that God would accomplish his will in the midst of whatever you're about to go through. Because you don't know. You don't know what's in front of you. God does though. Let's go into verse 11. For I long to see you, that, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, verse 11, if you take it just by itself, it can really appear conceited, right? I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to establish you. I'm going to make you strong. And if you're reading this letter for the first time, you're like, What? Who, why would he be saying that? But he qualifies it really, really quickly in verse 12. He's saying, what I mean is, when we're together, we're going to be mutually encouraged. I'm going to strengthen you and you're going to strengthen me. Paul's saying, we need each other, believers. We need each other, don't we, New Hope? We do. We need each other. We need each other to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, to support one another. I was in a, a church in Albion, Michigan when I was 28 years old as a guest speaker. I used to be in radio and for 15 years involved in radio. And So people would call in and and would invite me to come and speak as a guest speaker in their churches. And pastors would go on vacation or they would just want pulpit supplies so they could have a break. And so I agreed to do that on a regular basis in this particular church I was in. I'd never been in before. But when I arrived, I got there early and I found these people were incredibly gracious. I mean, just so thankful and receptive and encouraging. And I thought, wow, you guys are great to hang around. And we get into the service, and I begin doing the teaching. And this is an African-American church, and there's like three white people in the whole church, right? And I'm one of the three, all right. And so there's this elderly black woman sitting in the back row. And I wasn't used to their style, but they're really, really engaged in the service, and they're, they're jumping all over everything that I'm saying. And then loud above the crowd, this elderly woman sitting in the front row begins putting her hand up and saying, Help him, Jesus! Help him, Jesus! And I'm thinking, man, I must be really screwing this up, right? What she was trying to do, and I understand that she was encouraging, right? She was, she was looking to encourage a brother who was bringing the Word. Uh, This is where Paul's at right in this situation. He's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to help you. And you're going to strengthen me. We're going to be of encouragement to each other because life is not easy for these Christians in the first century. Paul's not coming to them as a tourist. He's not coming to see the Colosseum or the chariot races. He's coming to do the work of the kingdom He's got this deep desire that they'd strengthen one another and that they would walk together and they would celebrate together, but also that they would mourn together and that they will struggle together. So he's saying, your faith strengthens me and I'm stronger as a result of it, but I'm going to do my best to strengthen you as well. Verse 13, let's move forward. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. You can read throughout the New Testament, and you won't find any specific indication of why Paul was prevented. You might look at Thessalonians, and it looks like he's giving a reason, like maybe it was satanic opposition. But clearly, there were things that he had to do, things that had to be accomplished before he could go. But here's what I want to focus on, verse 13. This one applies to you and I that I may obtain some fruit. Just focus on that phrase for just a minute. That I may obtain some fruit among you. Now, in your Bible, you might have the phrase, reap a harvest, depending on the translation that you have. Maybe you have NIV or ESV. This phrase, that I may obtain some fruit among you, really applies to reaping a harvest. Fruit and harvest are interchangeable. Fruit is used in three ways in the Bible, and I want to show you the three specific ways. Let's take a look at these three things on the screen, the way that fruit is used. First of all, it's used as a metaphor for attitudes. So when we think of Galatians 5.22 very quickly, we think of the phrase, the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, patience, self-control, right? All those things pop to mind. What we're talking about there are character traits. So that's the fruit of attitudes. But here's the other way the Bible speaks of fruit. It talks about action, and that's action-oriented, like holy living type stuff. Here's an example, Romans 6.22. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derived your benefit, meaning fruit, the same, same exact word, you, you derived your fruit resulting in sanctification. Here's a couple of examples for you. An example of active fruit in your life, Philippians says, is the fruit of giving. You put money in the offering box to support the work of the church. That's the fruit of your hands, the fruit of giving. Here's another example. The fruit of your lips, Scripture says, is praise. You lift up glory to Jesus that's the fruit of your lips that's action oriented so we've seen attitude we've seen action here's the third one and this is the one paul's talking about it's the fruit of of increase of addition of growth within the kingdom he uses that phrase specifically in romans sixteen five when he talks about the first convert from the continent of asia to come into the kingdom of christ that's a first fruit So Paul is referring here to this third kind. He's talking about both new believers and those who are maturing in Christ, understanding who they are. And he's talking on a a level of the Roman Empire that there would be this outreach. As a result of the outreach, people would be drawn into the kingdom of Jesus. So verse 14 takes it one step further. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He's talking about two divisions of mankind here. The the Greeks thought of themselves as the most cultured people on planet Earth. Those who were the most sophisticated, who had arrived to the highest pinnacle of life, and everyone else was considered barbarian. So if you spoke the Greek language, you were cultured. But if you didn't speak the Greek language, you were uncultured, or what they called barbarian. So if you were a foreigner coming into the area where the Greek language was spoken and your only dialect was Spanish, if they heard you speak, they would begin mocking you by a phrase like this, bar, 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 bar. In other words, a short phrase for barbarian. You can't speak our language, you're uncultured. So they looked down on them. In truth, in this world, people are either cultured or uncultured, right? You, you fit into one of those two groups, but Paul says either wise or foolish, cultured or uncultured, Greek or barbarian. See, the Greek or barbarian, it just forms this natural pair of opposites, just summing up the world's population. So Paul says, I'm clarifying the mission. This thing called the obedience of faith that we looked about in verse 5 last week, he says, This thing that I'm called to do, I'm called to do it for the highest as well as the lowest. I'm under obligation. I'm bound, literally, and this applies to us this morning. I'll explain it. I am a debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. The word that is used here is ophiliotes. I want you to see this word because it's not in your notes this morning. It very simply has this definition attached to it. An ower. You have a mortgage this morning on your house. Maybe you have a car payment or a credit card payment, or perhaps a a, a debt due to a doctor for medical services. You're an ophelio taste. That's not to shame you. That's just stating a fact of life. We have things that we're indebted to. Paul uses that word specifically in this situation. He says, I've got this commission. The commission is the obedience of the faith, and it's put me under obligation. I've got a debt. Now, here's what I want you to ponder this morning, church. Who is the debt to? You don't have to answer that out loud, but just think about that for a moment. Who is the debt to? For any of us to receive what we have from God, to receive the gospel, to receive the message of grace, is to incur a debt, but your debt is not to God. Follow that thought. Your debt is not to God. Because you received what you have as a gift, right? Scripture says, what we have received, this grace is a gift of God, lest any one of us would boast. So if, if there's a debt, it's not to God here because you don't pay for a gift, right? At least I hope on Christmas morning when you're opening your gifts, you're not exchanging money with your family members, right? You're not pulling money out of your pocket, say, oh, thanks for that new tie. Let me pay you for that. Not gonna do that because it's a gift, it's, it's a gift, so you're not going to pay for it. So the debt is not to God. Paul speaks specifically of having a debt to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. You and I have the exact same debt this morning, the exact same obligation. I'll finish that thought in just a moment, but here's what I know about debts. Debts call for repayment, right? You've got to pay back a debt. How do you do that? How does Paul pay back this debt? He's under orders, he's under obligation. He's gotta do something specific. What does it take to pay back a debt that is not to God, but God gives you the orders to do? You gotta pass on the good news. You gotta pass on the news of this gospel of grace to people who have never heard. So he's got an obligation to people who have not yet received this gift of grace. In other words, he's got a grace gift, he's got to pass on the grace gift. He understands that because it's really, really important to carry this message regardless of national origin. So he's saying, I don't care if they're wise or foolish. I don't care if they speak the Greek language or some other language. I have an obligation to them. Why? Because every one of us started out in the same place. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We're all sinners before God. The sin factor levels the ground, doesn't it? We may think we're all that. God says, you're not all that. I'm not a respecter of persons. Sin takes away any element of superiority because we all need what God offers. I've heard it said that the gospel is the great equalizer. That every human is equally lost without the gospel. And every human is equally saved through the gospel. So it makes it the great equalizer. Paul recognizes that. So he says, I got this debt. You, church, have the exact same debt. He's in debt. He wants to discharge the debt. You're going to get a chance to do that this morning in communion. I'll explain that. Paul understands that. Go with me to verse 15. So he says, so for my part... I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, and I put dot, 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 because there's no way I'm getting into verse 16 today. right? (laughs) Just, just, it's too weighty. It deserves its own weekend, right? So we'll do that next weekend. So he says, for my part, I'm anxious to repay this debt. I want to bring the gospel to you who are in Rome. He simply wants to discharge the trust that's been committed to him for now you and i get to come to the communion table and we've got this exact same obligation on us think about what jesus said the night before he's killed on the cross he's in the upper room with his followers and he holds up the bread and he holds up the cup And we're told that he says, this this cup represents my blood. This bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And as often as you do this, you proclaim my death and my resurrection until I come again. So what you're about to do, church, is you're about to discharge the debt Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you're going to witness to each other. The person on your left, on your right, the person in front of you and behind, you're going to participate because you're going to be taking these elements you're going to say, this is for me. He did this for me. This is the gospel in a nutshell. You get to witness to each other. And I'm confident because I know this church, you would do this if we were in the parking lot at Frandor Mall. It doesn't matter that you're in an auditorium. You'd do this any place because you're not ashamed of the gospel, right? Okay, like 20 of you are not. You're not ashamed of the gospel, right? Okay, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. Not afraid to say that. So you get to witness this morning, you get to discharge the debt. We, We get to live out what Paul has just talked about here. We've received grace. So we're under obligation to speak of the grace that we've received. We get to remember how we received it, why, and we get to witness to it. So our tradition, if you're new to New Hope, is to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just a short passage of the instructions of how to do communion. If you're not familiar with our procedure here, what we have are tables in the front and in the back and up in the balcony by which you can walk up to the table and there'll be somebody standing there who will say to you, this is the body and the blood of Christ. If you'll pick it up and take it back to your seat, I'll talk you through the rest. But let me read to you from 1 Corinthians so we hear God's Word directly about what we were told to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you preach, right? It says you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until one, until he comes again. We get to keep doing this. We're witnessing to each other. That's why the strong warning in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So our time right now is for you to examine yourself, just for you in prayer to talk to your heavenly Father before you come up to one of the tables. Just examine yourself about where you're at in your relationship, and when you're ready, go ahead and come up, receive the elements, and take them back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. How about if we stand and take communion together? you ready to be a witness? All right. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up the bread and he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And in the same meal, he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, I thank you for the witness of this church. We are not a people who are ashamed, but we are proud and glad to say that we belong. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you've done for us. And we stand here as a people who are grateful. And I know, Father, that you're pleased. I, I know you're pleased with the witness that just took, took place here. God, look upon us with your blessing this week, that we would walk proudly and boldly and confidently before you because of who we are in you. Remind us of what you've done for us. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the things we've examined this morning our need to lean into You for Your will and for Your purposes, but to be bold to talk about who Jesus is. Thank You, Father, that we have a reason to talk about Him, that He saved us. We pray to You in the name of the only King of kings and Lord of lords who is returning again one day. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.